Okay, well this morning we are back in our part two of our series in Acts, we're calling Missional. Uh, we're making a short and steady progress through this second half of this wonderful book, Luke's account of the massive growth and expansion of the early church under the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've got your Bibles, do turn to chapter 13 of Acts. Um, we're actually going to be attempting to cover two whole chapters this morning. Don't panic, I'm not going to be reading them out. In fact, I'm only going to be reading a few verses out. But uh, if you've got time, I do encourage you to read chapters 13 and 14 when you get back home today or throughout the week, just to get a real flavor of this ongoing mission of Jesus Christ through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today is St. George's Day, um, the patron saint of England. I have to say, I don't know very much about him. Or I certainly didn't know much about him apart from his legendary dragon-slaying abilities. Um, so I thought I'd do a little bit of research. Wikipedia is a wonderful thing. And I found out that actually he was Greek. Who knew? He wasn't British at all. Quite ironic, really, considering that the George Cross is such a symbol of nationalistic pride and... Uh, sometimes a bit xenophobic as well, but he was Greek and he was raised by Christian parents and he had a very strong faith himself. He was, most people think he was lived in Lydda uh, in Palestine, lived around 280 AD if you're interested. Uh, some say he was actually born in Compersia, uh, but we don't know, but there we go. But he wanted to be a Roman soldier like his dad Tragically, his parents died when he was still a teenager, so he went into the Roman army and quickly went through the ranks and became a very high-ranking tribune. Then, persecution massively broke out against Christians. Under Emperor Diocletian in AD 303, huge persecution broke out. And part of that persecution was that every Roman soldier needed to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And of course, George refused. And despite Emperor Diocletian's pleads, because he really liked George, he didn't want to lose one of his greatest tribunes, still George refused. And so he was tortured and beheaded. And then obviously all the myths and legends grew about his dragon-slaying abilities, basically the dragon kind of this image of good versus evil, the, the great fight that he portrayed when he refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. What has all this got to do with Acts, I hear you say? Well, probably a little more than you think, actually, because George's family, St. George's family, is direct fruit of what we have been looking at over these last few weeks that the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, is not just for the Jews, not just for God's chosen people, but for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of your upbringing. 
In fact, it is very likely that one of George's relatives became a Christian when Peter visited Lydda in Acts chapter 9. When he healed the paralyzed man, it said the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw this guy walking about and it said the whole city turned to the Lord. The whole town turned to the Lord. Who knows? Maybe at that time when Peter visited Lydda, it sowed the seeds that would change the legacy of a family. If Peter hadn't done that, if God hadn't done that miracle there, we might not even have a St. George. Our Union Jack might look very different. Weird, isn't it? But as we read through the book of Acts, we see this bigger picture of the gospel beginning to unfold beyond Jerusalem into Judea, throughout Samaria, and now as we get to chapter 13, the beginning of the gospel breaking into Asia Minor, and then eventually the ends of the earth. I don't know if you're a fan of disaster movies, these sort of virus disaster movies. I don't know if you've seen Contagion or I Am Legend. Basically, it's these films where some super deadly virus has been discovered, Uh, in one person, and and the film just plots this virus spreading from one person to a whole city, to a whole nation, and eventually the whole world. And of course, it's all about one guy trying to find the, 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 the cure for this deadly virus. That's kind of what was happening with the gospel, except rather than it bringing death, Thank God it brought life and hope and healing. But it's this same viral spread that was beginning. I mean, or think about you know, a video clip going viral. It's the same phrase, isn't it? This rapid spread, something so small and insignificant, like a mum videoing herself in a Chewbacca mask in her car, suddenly 150 million people have viewed it. It's impacted multitudes. Something so small, so seemingly insignificant. In Jesus' time, he described it because they wouldn't have had a clue about viruses. He described it as yeast. Small, tiny, and yet influencing and impacting the whole loaf. Or a mustard seed, tiny, insignificant, and yet growing into this enormous, mighty tree. Something so small and insignificant as a little uprising in a backwater region of the Roman Empire, transforming the world and everybody's life as we know it. God's bigger picture. On that day of Pentecost, God started a viral sensation when he sent his Holy Spirit. This this exponential explosion. If we just look, if we look at the next slide... Just look at all the different nations that were represented, all the different towns, all the different regions that were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's amazing, isn't it? These people from all these different walks of life suddenly seeing the Holy Spirit coming on normal men and women, hearing their own language being spoken supernaturally. There were seeds sown from that day on that would then be scattered throughout the regions. And so in many ways, Paul's missionary journeys that we're going to be starting to look at, in many ways, they are simply catching up 
with what the Holy Spirit was already doing. You know, all of Paul's and the subsequent witnesses were simply catching up with what God was already doing, catching up with his bigger picture. And you know what? It's the same today. What we do, we're just catching up with what God is already at work doing. When we went out on the high street at Easter, we had a time of prayer just beforehand, and a word came that God was plowing up the high street, literally turning over the soil so when the seeds of the gospel were sown, they fell into good soil. God going before us. And so this morning, I just want us to focus on God's bigger picture, helping us to see what God is already doing and wants to do through you and through me. And to start with, we're going to be back with the church in Antioch. Let's just read the first four verses of Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so begins Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas and initially John Mark who was with them for the first leg of that journey. The gospel into Asia Minor. If you remember, when was it, a few weeks ago, we looked at the church in Antioch in quite depth, in quite in depth, and we saw what a wonderful model of a church it really was. You know, that it wasn't a perfect church. No church is perfect because it's full of imperfect people like me and like you. But they got a lot of the key things right. And we looked at some of those key things a few weeks ago. But because they got those key things right, they were a church that refused to settle. They refused to get complacent. I don't know, I think it would have been quite easy for them to have got complacent. God was doing an amazing work. He was adding to their number. They were impacting the city of Antioch. They were reaching their neighbors. They had some amazing leaders. I mean, Paul and Barnabas as your teachers, they could have easily have settled. But they didn't. Because they had this culture of mission that we looked at last time, deep in their DNA. They knew that God's bigger picture was far bigger than simply having an awesome church in Antioch. It was far bigger than themselves. There was more for them to do. And so as we look at this moment when Paul and Barnabas are sent off, I just want to draw out some things that hopefully will help us see the bigger picture of what God wants to do in us and through us, as he did with the church in Antioch. Firstly, we see their total dependency on the grace of God. Again, we looked at their culture of grace. They kept on relying on the grace of God to accomplish this bigger picture. 
They didn't rest on their laurels. You know, we see this as they are worshiping and praying and fasting, seeking God's will. They know they are weak vessels. They're seeking God's strength. They're seeking his guidance. They're seeking his wisdom. I mean, just the very fact that these guys are worshiping together, considering who these guys are, is a miracle of God's grace in itself. You know, I think sometimes when we read through lists of names in the Bible, we can gloss over the details. But here in this room, we have Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew brought up in in the Greek culture. We've got Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black. Most commentators say he was from North Africa. As was Lucius from Cyrene, which is in Libya, both North Africans. You've then got this character called Manian who's described as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This, this is the guy, this is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. This is the guy who mocked Jesus, dressed him up like a king and said, there's your king of the Jews, and sent him back to Pilate as a joke. He was not a nice guy. And Manian, one of the elders of a great church, was his lifelong friend, grew up with him. And into this really assorted mix, you then have Paul, who was a Hebrew Jew, describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, unless we forget, was also a murderer and a persecutor of the church and the very gospel which he was now championing. What a motley crew. What a mixed bunch. Leaders of an amazing church. It kind of gives me hope (laughs) when I sort of read that. People with a past. But you know what? God loves to use people with a past because it shows his redeeming grace. I was at a conference yesterday and one of the the leaders there said that um, a member, church member, came to him and said, I don't know if you're aware of the type of people who are coming to this church. Do you know the type of people who are coming? He replied, do you know the type of people who are leading this church? I thought it was such a good reply. We've all got pasts. And guess what? God loves to use people with pasts to show his redeeming grace, to show this bigger picture of the gospel. You know, this, this bunch of leaders worshipping together is just a wonderful demonstration of that that redeeming grace, people who would have been brought up to have despised one another, brought up to look down on each other, you don't mix with them. That's how they were brought up, and here they are, worshipping and praying together. It's a real living model of God's bigger picture of reconciliation, not just between God and man, but between each other. You know, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, privileged underprivileged, all one in Christ. And they knew they needed the grace of God. They knew they were a mixed bag. They knew they needed God's help. And Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 1.27, says God chose the foolish things of this world to shame, to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And he was very much classing himself in that. Just a wonderful demonstration God's bigger picture is rooted in his redeeming grace. And they knew they needed 
his grace to continue to unite them and continue to guide them. They knew that what they had experienced in the leadership team, but also in the church, was something that the world needed to experience. And so this whole missionary journey, in fact, every missionary journey, was rooted in the grace of God. In fact, Luke, who, who the author of Acts, describes simply the gospel message in Acts 14 verse 3 as simply the message of grace. What's the gospel? What's the good news? It's a message of grace. On their missionary journey, when people respond to the gospel, Paul and Barnabas urge them to continue in the grace of God. We're saved by grace. We carry on living in and relying on the grace of God. And when some of these churches started to fall away from grace, like the church in Galatia, he said, no, no, you've fallen away from grace. Keep coming back to the grace of God. And on their return after they have gone around this first missionary journey, it says they celebrate in Acts 14.26 that all the work that they had completed was all the grace of God. The thing is, when we are reliant on God's grace, it stops us from getting complacent. It stops us from being self-reliant. And it helps us see God's bigger picture. God is on the move. He is at work. And in his grace, he invites us to jump on board. Will we do that? Will we do that? Secondly, God's bigger picture requires us to take some risks. Requires us to take some risks. When God clearly speaks to them about setting apart Saul and Barnabas, or Paul as he's now called and referred to, they prayerfully take the risk. They count the cost. And they obey. It's challenging, isn't it? We said last time that this church had a really open-handed approach to what God had blessed them with, whether that was finances or whether that was people. They just had this wonderful open-handed approach to what God had blessed them with. They were blessed to be a blessing. They knew that. And we're not talking, when we're saying taking risks, we're not talking about being foolhardy or flippant. You know, woo, let's just take risks for the fun of it. No, we're talking about prayerfully considered steps of faith. But as John Wimber famously said, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. You know, he wasn't very good at spelling, obviously, but he had a lot of truth in that. You know, it's often the way when we step out in faith, there is a risk. There's a risk. Sometimes to our reputation. What if this goes wrong? What if this falls flat on the face? What am I going to look like? Sometimes it's a risk to our own comfort as God pulls us out of our comfort zones. There's a risk there, isn't there? And sometimes there's a risk even to our safety. But you know what? God has promised to be with us as we take these steps of faith. These risky steps of faith, God has promised to be with us. It was risky for the church. They were losing their two key teachers Would they suddenly go off the rails? Would they suddenly become full of false teachers? But they had to trust that if God truly was in this, that they would thrive as a church. 
And Paul and Barnabas simply had to entrust this church that they loved into God's hands while they were away. There was a risk for the church. And it was doubly risky for Paul and Barnabas. I mean, we discover pretty quickly as you read through Acts 13 and 14, almost immediately, first stop, Cyprus. They find demonic opposition straight away. When they get to Antioch in Pisidia, a different Antioch to the one in Syria, Paul preaches his socks off in front of the whole city But a bunch of jealous Jews managed to turn the crowd, and they're chased out of town. They go to Iconium in in chapter 14. They have to flee again, this time an attempted stoning. This is scary stuff, isn't it? A mob, a whole town suddenly turning against you, wanting to stone you. That's pretty risky. And it gets worse. Well, they arrive in Lystra. You know, it starts off going really well. They see miracles and everything, and yet these same Jews are following them around. They can't shake them off. It's like, oh, no, that crowd are here again. And they must be really good at working a crowd, but they manage to turn the city against them again. This time, they're so successful, they manage to stone Paul. So badly, they think he's dead. And because they think he's dead, they throw him out of the city. We don't want any dead people in here. So badly was he stoned, they thought he was dead. Paul was beginning to see what Jesus had told him at his conversion, that he must suffer for his name. He was beginning to see that. There's a risk in saying yes to God's bigger picture there's a cost. You know, some of you in this, in this room know that cost very clearly. You know that cost. And yet I don't think it's something we need to shy away from. I know myself, many of us, can often be a bit too risk adverse. We like to have our comfort sort of buffer. I'll step this far, but let's just keep it a little bit safe. And yet, God has promised to be with us. And as God continues to lead us, let's pray for a spirit of boldness to step out into this new territory that he's calling us to. He's promised to be with us. He's promised to strengthen us. We can know that security that we spoke about, whatever our circumstances. Faith is risky. You know, I mean, even multiplying a life group is risky. Even something like that. It sounds quite timid in comparison to a whole city wanting to stone you. But even that can pull us out of our comfort zones, can't it? You know, for a start, will it work? Will it all just fall flat on, our, on its face? Will we lose friendships because we're not seeing each other so regularly? You know, crumbs, I'm going to be a bit more exposed in a smaller group. I might actually be asked to lead a bit more. I feel a bit uncomfortable. Even something like multiplying a life group can pull us out of our comfort zones. Let alone church planting. I remember when we planted the church here 13 or so years ago, we'd moved from a very comfortable church. Everything was laid on. You know, wonderful kids' work, thriving youth work, worship bands, lovely building, 
It's very comfortable. Suddenly, it was just us. <laughs> Suddenly, it became DIY church. If you want anything done, you do it yourself. There's a cost. It's risky. Certainly risky for Pete and Mary to see you guys sitting there, putting their house on, a mar- on the market, leaving a secure salary job to move to Sutton with a bunch of a very mixed bag of people. But God is faithful, isn't he? And God continues to be faithful. And as a church, we continue to, to take risky steps of faith. Whether that's taking on and developing a building, or whether that's taking on and developing more staff and leaders. But I'd like to think when God says, go and plant again, we too will be the sort of church that counts the cost, takes the risk, and steps out into God's bigger picture. I'd like to think that we're that sort of church. You know, last Wednesday, we gathered as a, as a leader's prayer breakfast, and it was really exciting to hear another local church, the local vineyard. God had put on their heart to find a prayer space in Sutton Town Center, not just for them, but for the church in Sutton. This was a kingdom thing. And so they prayed about it, and God provided, and he provided the front area of the old dolphin pub that's been refurbished and remodeled right down the bottom end of the high street. Amazing provision of God, yet there was still a risk, and there is still a risk. Financially, they have to raise funds to do it up. There's also the risk of would the church get hold of the vision? The leaders have, but would the church get behind this vision? Because if the church don't, then there's not a lot of point on having this space. There's a risk involved, but it was wonderful to hear how the leaders described that God had taken them all on this journey of faith. This journey of faith. You know, in many ways, it reminded me of our journey in acquiring Highfield Hall really stretches your faith. And that's the thing is, as we're prepared to take risks, it's the old thing of that's when we grow. That's when faith is developed. That's when apathy is thrown off. Because suddenly it's an adventure. It's an adventure when we take risks. Has your Christian walk stopped becoming an adventure? We're called a people on a mission Has your Christian walk stopped becoming an adventure? Can I suggest pray, seek God about his bigger picture for your life, for the life of the church, for the life of your family, for the life of your life group? I think, I still think one of the greatest dangers of the church in the West is that it's asleep. It's full of apathetic people. I know it's one of the biggest things I have to fight. Apathy, comfort, settling. We have to stir ourselves. It's the culture we're in. We're falling asleep. And, you know, Rob mentioned Brother Yun in The Heavenly Man, his book, The Heavenly Man, a couple of weeks ago. And I'll never forget, Brother Yun was approached by a pastor of a Western church. And he said, Brother Yun, I just want you to know we are praying for you and the church in China. 
It must be so hard facing the persecution day in, day out that you guys face. And Brother Young said, thank you. We too are praying for the church in the West. It must be so hard facing and fighting such a lack of faith and apathy. And you're not seeing the miracles that we're seeing on a daily basis. It must be so hard. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? You know, we're we're all fighting an enemy. Sometimes it can be a lot more visible than at others. Brother Young went on to say, We often pray for the Western church to rise up and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's almost impossible for the church in China to go to sleep in its present situation. There is always something that keeps us on the run, and it's very hard to sleep when you're running. I don't know if you've tried it. If persecution stops, I fear we will become complacent and fall asleep. Interesting, isn't it? I think it's often true that the more physically safe and comfortable we are, the more at risk we are spiritually. And the same is true. The more at risk we are physically is often the time we are most secure spiritually. And history has shown us time and time again when persecution comes, as we read through the early part of Acts, it simply scattered the gospel. In the persecution in 303, which St. George died in, was martyred in, that persecution under Emperor Diocletian, the idea was that that was going to crush Christianity once and for all. Let's just stamp this out. Let's just get on and get over it. That was AD 303. In AD 24, Christianity is declared as the main religion of Rome, and over 50% of the entire Roman Empire are declaring Jesus as Lord. We still see it today, don't we? The gospel is unstoppable. It's wonderful to be on that side, isn't it? Jesus will accomplish all that he desires. That his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end. You know, for Paul and Barnabas, as you read through these couple of chapters, you see that despite the opposition, despite the risk, they see an incredible move of God. City after city responding to the gospel, church after church planted. You know, and Paul continues to take risks with the leadership of the church as well, because as they retrace their steps back round through the, ch- through the cities, through the villages, they then come back, visit those churches, and appoint leaders, appoint elders. If you think about it, these guys had not been believers very long. The whole missionary journey was probably over, just over a year and a half. Not a long time to grow some roots and lead a church, yet they must have been robust converts, must have been well taught. But you know what? Paul was able to entrust them to God, entrust them to the Holy Spirit, the greatest teacher, the greatest guide for any leader. You know, he had to trust that the grace of God that they had experienced in their own lives, these guys could too. He had to trust the grace of God again. 
And we know that these churches were pretty impressive because it says in Acts 13, 40, 49 actually, the word of the Lord continued to spread out throughout the entire region. So Paul was planting churches in cities and those churches then reached their regions. City reached the region, city reached the region. That way he covered a massive area with the gospel as he entrusted these churches, as he entrusted these leaders to God's Holy Spirit, and to his grace. God's bigger picture is rooted in grace. It requires us to take risks. Thirdly and finally, it results in joy. In joy. And we see this right the way throughout this missionary journey. It was full of joy. Even after getting driven out of Antioch in Pisidia, in Acts 13, 51, it says, they shook the dust from their feet against them. I don't know what that looks like. You know, shake your feet feet, dust off your feet, you know, like this. And then they went to Iconium. And the disciples, listen, were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. I think it was Michaela or someone even this morning was saying, whatever our circumstances, we can know this unshakable joy. You know, they could shake the dust off their feet. Nothing could shake the joy off them. This joy was unshakable, whatever the circumstances. They had the joy of seeing multitudes coming to God, responding to the truth that Jesus is alive. They had these amazing, joyful times of seeing people healed and set free. Again, on that conference I was at yesterday, there was testimony after testimony of people that God had set free. It just brought tears to, I think, everybody's eyes. Just the beauty of God's redemptive grace. It says in Acts 14, verse 3, The Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Wonderful. You know, Paul himself experienced the miraculous as well. Because even after being stoned so badly that he was left for dead... It simply says, afterwards, he rose up, re-entered the city. The next day, he went on with Barnabas preaching. That must have been a miraculous healing there. So badly ill, so badly beaten up by stones, he must be dead too. He got up, went back into the city, carried on preaching. Wonderful, miraculous power of God. And on their return, the end of chapter 14, they gather the church in Antioch and Syria together their friends, their brothers and sisters, and they celebrate what God had done. Joy right the way through this mission, despite the risks, despite the hardships. It's unshakable joy. They had the joy of seeing God open up doors throughout Asia Minor, breaking new ground throughout that region. Wonderful. They, soon God would open the doors to Europe. And eventually to the very heart of Rome itself. God was on the move. And in just a few short years, Paul was able to say, there is now no more work here for me to do. Just amazing seeing God's hand at work. Paul seemed to have this unshakable joy that was rooted in what Jesus has done, but also in seeing his kingdom increasingly come. 
rooted in what Jesus had done, but also seeing the increasing kingdom of God coming. As I said, those believers in Antioch could have easily sat back and gone, wow, look at what God has done in our church. We've got a thriving multicultural church here. God is adding to our number and just left it at that. But they didn't. They had this attitude of, wow, just think what God is going to do next. That was their attitude. They kept on having their eyes on this bigger picture. And as a church, as I said, we're about 13 or so years old. Wow, just think what God is able to do next. In fact, don't just think about it, pray about it, fast about it, seek God with all your heart about it, about where he wants to take us next. You know, as Mike said, we've got a night of prayer What a wonderful opportunity on May the 13th to really seek his face, to say, God, what are you wanting to do next? Help us to see your bigger picture. Where are you at work? Where do you want us to come in on the back of? Let's keep hold of this bigger picture. Let's keep trusting in his grace to take big, risky steps of faith. Because that is where we will discover true, lasting joy. Amen? Amen. I'm going to leave it there because I want us to have time to worship. Let's just invite the band back. And uh, I don't know where Mike's gone. He just disappeared. That's good timing, wasn't it? Why don't we all stand to our feet if we're able? I'm just going to pray over us. There he is. You know, I believe God wants to open some people's eyes this morning to see what God wants to accomplish through you. We've already seen, I've got a past. How can God use me? Massively. I've kind of gone a bit cold. Well, shrug off apathy. Shrug off any complacency. Allow God to stir your heart again. Maybe he has placed a burden or an area of ministry on your heart. Maybe you just have a burden for a particular people group. Allow the Holy Spirit to stir your heart again. He's called us on an adventure. It's risky, but it's amazing fun. And he has promised to be with us. Let's shake off apathy. Let's step out of our comfort zones. When God says go, let's be a church that counts the cost, that takes those steps of faith into his bigger picture. Amen. I mean, let's just pray and then we'll worship. Father, I just want to thank you for your incredible grace upon us as a people, as your church. I thank you, Lord, that your your will, your purposes will always be accomplished. Thank you that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Thank you for the privilege that you invite us on as partners in the gospel. And I pray for us as a church, will you stir us? Will you wake us up, Lord? Will you help us shed apathy and complacency? Help us to be eager to see where you're at work. Help us to have ears that hear and eyes that see what you're doing in the Spirit. Help us to have boldness and confidence and power to then step into where you're calling us. Father, we thank you that you have got plans way bigger than we could ever ask or imagine. Help us to see the bigger picture for our own lives 
and for this church, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him.